Good evening and welcome. Well, this evening we're going to begin the first of two parts, study through the book of Revelation. And um, it's, it's kind of exciting to me because by the end of next Tuesday night, or Wednesday night, you'll all be experts on the book, ready to teach others the meaning of it. So... Actually, as I promised last week, I really am endeavoring to kind of break it down into its simplest outline so that it really does become not quite so frightening. It's probably the most neglected book in the Bible, maybe next to Leviticus, but unfortunately, it's, it's a critically important book as well. Let's start with a word of prayer and we'll dig into this. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word we believe that uh, from verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis to the very last book or verse of this Bible, that it is an inspired word of God given to us for edification, for, for building us up in our faith, Lord. And we ask God that you would open this book of Revelation to our understanding. It's amazing that it's a book of unveiling, and yet many people see it as a book that's incredibly veiled. We pray, God, that you would prove to us through the next two Wednesday nights that that is not true. We trust you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's no letter or book of the New Testament or maybe even the Old Testament that more gives more specific accreditation to the author than the book of Revelation. In fact, four times John identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 1. Again, in verse 4, he says, Jesus Christ made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, I, John, your brother and companion. Again, in chapter 22, at the end of the book, in verse 8, he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Historically, traditionally, um, it's been accredited to John the Apostle, who is also the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters. Uh, the church fathers like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, um, Clement of Alexandria, and others have all testified that John was, in fact, the author of this book. Uh, you may hear people or read commentaries, uh, people saying, well, there may have been another person named John the Elder. Um, it's, a, it's a concept that was introduced in, about, in the third century by, uh, by uh, uh, Dionysius, the, the uh, bishop of Alexandria, um, for, I think, some questionable and dubious reasons. Basically, he was trying to uh, stop what he called them uh, the millennial views that were rampant. In other words, there were people who were taking the book literally. And he, so he put forth saying, well, this is probably not John the Apostle, but by someone else, and thereby hoping to lessen its uh, authority in the minds of many people. But historically, it's John the Apostle. In fact, everything within it seems to support that. that. But in one sense, John was really just the writer or maybe more accurately just the messenger because again in verse 1 and in verse 11 of chapter 1, it refers to it as the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave uh, John. Uh, again in verse 11, he tells him, write on a scroll what you see. So that what John is essentially doing is reporting his observations 
through this vision that he received from the Lord. John tells us that he penned this book while he was on the Isle of Patmos. The island of Patmos is about, is about 38 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey today. The circumference around the island is only about 25 miles, um, and it was used primarily by the Romans as a penal colony, basically a place where you send people that you want to punish or get uh, put into exile because it's a, bar a pretty barren place. There's not a whole lot going on there. Traditional history says that John lived in a cave on the island, um, which may in fact have been the case. The problem with so many what we call holy sites is people put churches on top of them and you have a hard time seeing them anymore. And so this is true also in Patmos, the isle, that's the cave that's supposed to be dedicated to uh, the memory of John is a place where he resided, where he received this vision from the Lord, has a, a large basilica on top of it, and you can hardly really appreciate uh, the context of the vision. Uh, the early church historian, though, Eusebius, writing in the 3rd and 4th century, reported that John was sent to the island by Emperor Domitian in about 94 AD. Uh, Domitian, of course, the guy on the left here, um, <clears throat> he's kind of a... Uh, we, we know that uh, these busts that were made of the Roman emperors were always designed to make them look better than they actually did. So I'm, I'm sure he wasn't quite that handsome. His, his soul was not handsome at all. He was a, a very arrogant and hateful individual. But basically, um, he put John on the island and as in exile and left him there uh, until his death two years later. And then the new emperor, a man by the name of Nerva in 96 AD, released John and allowed him to reset in the city of Ephesus, which is probably where the revelation may have been put into the form that we know it today. But uh, who was John writing to? What was his audience? Well, again, this is fairly easy. Uh, we're told that he's writing to seven churches in the province of Asia, uh, specifically the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And it's interesting because you can't really tell on this map, but if you go from Ephesus to Sardis and Thyatira, Pergamum, and then back down to Philadelphia and Laodicea, that's actually a natural road and circuit that really kind of suggests to us that this was written as a circular letter to be carried from city to city, but also... Uh, it, was, it was clearly meant to be read by more than just the churches that are listed here. There is within it this sense that this is for the entire church, for the entirety of the church's history from that point on. So the vision that John received came to him somewhere between 94 and 96 AD. We're not told whether he wrote it down immediately or if he composed it when he came to Ephesus. We're not really told the exact context of that. But we do generally give it a date of about 96 AD, which ironically would make it probably the first of his writings. Many believe that the gospel and the letters actually came after this. So as I mentioned last week, John is one of those guys who really didn't come into the, the, the literary part of his ministry until he was in his mid to late 80s, uh, possibly even older than that. So for those of you who are saying, I'm too old to make a difference, uh, John is an example of somebody who never got too old. He made, an, made a difference 
from the entirety of his life. We also uh, are pretty certain that his life ended not too long after he had finished his uh, last and literary part of his career. Um, but uh, the bigger question is, why did he write this? And, of course, the most obvious answer is to say, well, God shows you a vision like that. What else are you going to do with it? You know, you see something like that, you're going to write it down. But God gave him the vision so that he would write it down for a purpose. And there's two things that really do stand out as you go through, especially the first uh, two or three chapters. Uh, first one of them is obvious is persecution, uh, Christianity at this point was beginning to spread almost what they would have considered to be at epidemic levels, um, and particularly amongst the poor and the slaves. Uh, Roman authorities were always and justifiably concerned uh, when the, the lower classes begin to organize around anything, whether it be an ideology or just a complaint, because this was the foment for rebellion. And we don't hear a lot in the modern times, but there were several major slave rebellions. If you've ever seen the movie or the book or uh, Spartacus, where Spartacus leads this rebellion against, it's actually a true, a true, well, I would say the movies are fictionalized quite a bit, but the event is a true event. And it was something that happened more than with Spartacus because it happened with others as well where slaves rose up, many times gladiators, in revolt against Rome because of the oppressions. And so the Roman authorities created places like Patmos to get rid of these people before they could become too great a problem. And John was certainly viewed as being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And there was a really some concern by the Romans as Christianity began to grow. And not only that, because it was an ideology that was so contrary to everything that seemed normal. You know how sometimes we, for example, we will watch things on the news and we'll just wonder, how did our country get to this place? You know, because we begin to see ideas and thoughts and values expressed that are so contrary to what we have known all our lives that we just, it just strikes us as being uh, wrong. I mean, you may not be able to verbalize it, but you're simply saying, this is sick and this is wrong. Well, it's hard to think of it this way, but I'll press you to try. Think about you're a Roman who grows up in the world with all these idols and all the things that are involved with this culture and society, and suddenly there's this new religious system that's calling people to not only no longer partake in those activities, but to actually speak against them in negative ways, to call them sin, to call them things that God is going to judge and hold people accountable for and so forth. That's kind of the way the Roman world and the Greek world looked at the Christians. You're saying something that is so diametric to everything that we've ever known, what you consider to be natural, they're now saying this is contrary to the ways of God. And so immediately they, dis they knew that they had to do something. When it was a small group of people without much influence, they didn't really worry about it at all. But now it was beginning to get some traction. Churches were beginning to pop up all over because it gave hope to people who for the most part felt like their lives were hopeless, purposeless, and without any chance of meaningful fulfillment. If you add to this that Emperor Domitian, whether he believed that he was a god or not, we're not told for sure, but he began to promote himself as being god. And it was really, uh, it's something that other emperors hinted at. When, for example, Julius Caesar was probably assassinated by the senators after he had his image printed on a coin. 
In 46, July 46, he had a coin printed with his picture on it. Previously, that had always been reserved for the gods of Rome. You put the gods picture on the, on the, the money because, you know, we all know in Jupiter we trust. And so they, but he put his picture on it and that's when they began to say, this guy has really gone too far. He's actually giving himself equal time with the deity. And many believe that was really the prime motivator for his assassination. But you know, usually when the emperor died, then they would say he's a god. So when Augustus died, he, they said he had become a god. But Domitian came full while he was still alive, began to say, along with Nero before him, of course they assassinated Nero for essentially the same thing, calling himself a god, and they killed him. Domitian claims he is a god and he is to be worshipped as a, a god on earth. And there is no outcry, there is no assassination, uh, everybody goes along with it. And as an act of contrition before the emperor deity, you are required to offer sacrifice and pledge obeisance to worship him as such. Well, for the Christians, this was really too far, too much. It was something that they could not allow themselves to do. And so they found themselves with a choice of conscience. Do we compromise our faith you know, one person suggested, well, what we can do is when we come up to the idol or the image of the emperor, we'll just bow down and tie our sandal. Who will know the difference? They think we're worshiping the emperor. But somebody else said, but God knows the difference. And so there were actually people who were trying to figure out. In fact, we know that after many of these many persecutions that many people left the churches we don't think about that in the early church much, but many of them chose to withdraw from Christianity. In fact, the Novation controversy in the second, the end of the thir third century was all about whether or not to let Christians who had backslid back into the church after the, the new emperor gave them a right to be free in their religious practice again. So you have to understand that they weren't that much different than you and I. When they came to the threat of their very life, they were like a lot of people today. They decided that they would become a Unitarian or something else like that. They just move on to some kind of religious thing that was not dangerous. But there were those who stood fast. And it's in the light of that that we find this letter is being, being written. Essentially, um, many like John were already being imprisoned for their faith. Uh, most were being persecuted like those we read about in the church of Smyrna where he said in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution. And so uh, it's interesting, the word Smyrna um, refers to, literally means the crushing of an incense. And these were people who were being crushed under the Roman foot. And uh, he said, you're going to suffer because of your faith. Don't give up on your faith. Still others even experienced martyrdom. We, we read in, in, this, in the letter to Pergamum in verse 13 where he says, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, literally the word martus, where we get our word martyr, who was put to death in your city. Uh, Pergamum, interestingly, was the center of emperor worship in that region of the world. So essentially, Antipas was somebody who actually was executed because he wouldn't bow down and worship the emperor. Uh, they carried it to such an extreme, and this would have been viewed as a way of expressing the, the depth and degree of their devotion to the emperor. And of course, the emperor uh, applauded this and, and supported such extreme actions. 
Um, but it's interesting, too, that we find in writing these letters that the persecution didn't come only from the Romans. It also came from what was called the synagogue of Satan. In fact, in writing to both Smyrna and Philadelphia, the only two churches in the list that are actively being persecuted and actively suffering, uh, that he refers to them being persecuted by the synagogue of Satan. The question is, what does that refer to? Well, it's most likely a reference to Jews who denounced Christians to the Roman authorities as not being true Jews and therefore not exempt from participation in the imperial cult. You see, Judaism had a special dispensation by Rome going back for hundreds of years where Jews were exempted from worshiping the emperor or bowing down to Jupiter or any other thing like that because uh, they had revolted and created so many problems, the Romans said it's better to let them worship the way they want than to continually have to be suppressing these revolts. So they had exemption, and so the Jew living in Smyrna or living in Pergamum didn't have to worship the emperor. They were exempted. The Christians were still viewed, we talked about this before, were still viewed by many as being just another sect within Judaism and therefore were often exempted as well. But increasingly the Jews were going to the Romans authorities and saying to them, these people aren't Jews, they aren't part of us, you have free reign to go and persecute them. And it's interesting that Paul or that John refers to him, Jesus refers to him as the synagogue of Satan. They're a synagogue, but they, their motivation is not God, but it's satanic. He's telling the believers, you're more Jewish than they are because you have faith in the God of Israel where they have just faith in their own works. If you add to this the pressure that comes not only from the persecution without, but also the corruption from within... And many times we minimize the problem of corruption within, but it, usually these two things come together, but they're equally devastating. You know, whether I have a wound to the flesh or I have a disease eating away at my colon, both can be deadly and can lead to the end of my life. And essentially, the thing can happen in the church. The church can have things from the outside that, that threaten to destroy it, but it also can have things on the inside that can threaten to destroy it, creating kind of a slow internal rot. I was thinking about this, trying to explain something to someone recently, and I, I used the illustration of a, a gentleman and his, his daughter on the west side were driving during our last windstorm we had this summer, and this large tree came crashing down on top of their car and, and killed them. And when they examined the tree, they found that the tree, though it looked to be healthy, was actually rotten on the inside, and that's why it broke and collapsed. And many times, that's what happens to nations. It's what happens to churches. It's what happens to institutions and individuals, that we can look great on the outside, but inside there's a rot going on. And this was a concern that we find that, that John and Jesus address in this letter with some of the churches that he writes to. Because first of all, there was the issue of heresy. In fact, three of the churches, we find that they're heretical teachings that had become widespread. Particular reference is made twice to what's called the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's been a great deal of speculation over the centuries as to who the Nicolaitans were, but the earliest writings say that they were a cult who basically taught that it was all right to uh, have moral compromise. In other words, um, that 
it wasn't wrong to engage in things like sexual immorality and drunkenness and things of that nature. These were not a problem with God because we're saved by grace. And that's the strongest amount of evidence that this teaching was actually, we call it a libertine theology, that basically grace covers everything and you can live any way you want. It doesn't matter to God. And that may very well be the heresy, but this teaching was, was mentioned and referenced within two of the churches that he writes to. Uh, secondly, there was a problem of, in certain places of apathy. Two of the churches, we know the church of Laodicea, he talks about them being lukewarm. You're neither hot, you're neither cold, that there's a, a tepidness to your faith. And uh, the way that water becomes tepid, it just simply adjusts itself to the temperature around it. I mean, you think about it, what what's tepid water? It's gone to room temperature. And essentially, it's when the outside environment begins to set the temperature for the water and, or the church becomes moderated to the culture in which it's a part. And so as a result, when he talks about the lukewarm church, they had just simply managed to meld into the culture so that any kind of salt and light dynamic of their faith was gone. There was nothing offensive in their Christianity. Now, understandably, none of us wants to be viewed as being an offensive person for any reason, everything from body odor to bad behavior. We don't want to be viewed by anybody as simply being offensive for offensiveness' sake. Uh, sometimes people get persecuted, and they say, I was persecuted because of my faith, and you get to know them, you realize, no, you're persecuted because you're a very obnoxious person, but it had nothing to do with your faith. In fact, you probably they couldn't see your faith for, for your breath, but the point is that but there, if there's nothing that offends people in what we say, then it's very likely that we're not telling them the t complete truth. Because to inform people that, that there are things that they like that God doesn't never is a popular message. I mean, I just, this, to simply say that there are, are lines which I can't allow myself to go beyond or to say that that's something that's going to separate you from God and eternity, these are not messages, I, I think you probably know this already, these are not messages that people say, thank you so much for telling me I'm going to hell. You know, I mean, it's, I've never known anybody, myself included, who wanted to hear that. In fact, before I was saved, I could take long detours to, to avoid coming in contact with those people on the street in downtown San Francisco or Berkeley who would love to pigeonhole me and tell me about Jesus. I saw a cross around their neck. Man, I found myself heading down streets into even dangerous neighborhoods because I felt the gangs were safer than these Christians. So the thing is that we understand that there's an offensive dynamic and it's dangerous if there is no longer an offense in the gospel. That's a dangerous place to come because what, what it means is we have just become tepid and that certainly was the problem with the church in Laodicea but there's also the comment he makes about the church of Sardis which currently is my favorite uh, seven church quote. I, I, I vary from time to time depending on which one is beating me up the worst but this, my favorite one is you have a reputation that you live but you're dead. You have a reputation that you live, but you're dead. In other words, you, and we don't know the specifics of the church in Sardis, but it's, it really is something I, I can picture in my mind where we can become so caught up in the expression of our faith, but when you really kind of peel it back the way that hardship does, you find, again, that there's nothing there 
or it's really kind of rotten to the core. So there was problems of heresy. There was spiritual apathy. They, they were no longer hungering and thirsting after God. But thirdly, there was apostasy as well. And apostasy literally means a departure from the faith. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 20, writing to the church of Thyatira, he says that Jezebel, it's the name, we don't know if that, maybe that is the literal name of this woman, though it's not likely since Jezebel is a Phoenician name. But it, we also know that probably comparing her to Jezebel of the Old Testament, but he says of Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, to eating food sacrificed to idols. In other words, this woman who was actually being tolerated, he uses the word tolerated in the church, was actually leading people into a life of immorality and departure from the faith. And he's so troubled because the church is not addressing it. They're not addressing it, um, which is not, again, that uncommon a problem even today. It's interesting when you look at the message of, to these churches that only two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, as I mentioned before, uh, are not reproved for anything. Five of the churches are all given what I call the nevertheless treatment. And that's part of the structural dynamic, the nevertheless. But they're the only ones, the rest, and they're the only two that were heavily being persecuted, were suffering for Christ. And the only advice that Jesus gives to them, he says, hold on to what you have until I come. Remain true to my name. Do not renounce your faith in me. So it's, it's, it's interesting because we often think that when we go through times of suffering and hardship that it's going to get really hard and difficult and then God is going to come swooping in and he's going to deliver us and we're going to live our lives happily ever after and, and, and writing books and going on speaking tours about that close call we one time had in life. The truth of the matter is, he says, no, just hang on until the end. Because really, the end of our journey is not here, it's heaven. And what he's pointing them to through the entire book is not a resolution of earthly difficulties, it's a resolution of their greater earthly difficulty, the fact that we live in a sinful world and God has planned for us to live in eternity. You have to understand that the human organism was created by God before sin came into the world. So that sin is, is a toxin. That's why we die. Sin kills us. And it's because our organism was not created to live in a sinful world. Yet you and I have lived in a sinful world all our life. And so we don't really know the difference. It's like living in a ghetto in New Delhi, India. You've, if you lived in the slum, that's all you've ever known until you leave it one day and realize that not everybody lives like this. And essentially, we live here on this earth, and then God reveals Jesus to us. He opens his word to us, and we begin to realize that we weren't created for time. We were created for eternity, and the reason why we struggle is because we have an organism that is not created to live within the environments of sin uh, any more than you were designed to live uh, in the water. You can survive in the water, but you can't live in the water. You do know the difference, right? <laughs> you can survive in it, but you can't live in it. And the whole point is that we can live in this world, but we, we, we can't survive in this world. Uh, but one, we can just, or we can survive in this world. We can't really live here. We don't ever reach the potential of what we were created by God to be. That's what heaven is all about. Kind of stumbled over my words on that one, didn't I? Anyway, 
So there's a few notable things that I would want to point out before we dig into the text here. The first of all, the book Revelation, the name Revelation. It's singular, not two. There's not more than one revelation. There is one revelation. It's actually one word, the apocalypsis. Uh, it means a to uncover or to unveil. We might picture as pulling the curtain back and suddenly you can see, you know, the Wizard of Oz, don't look behind the curtain. Well, God's telling you, no, I want you to look behind the curtain because you're not going to find an old man pulling ropes and, and pumping things. You're going to find God of the universe as we do in chapter 4 and 5. He opens the curtain and he allows us to look into the throne room of heaven. But he reveals a couple of things to us. He uncovers a couple of important things. One, he uncovers the one he refers to five times as who is, who was, and who is to come. That's, a, that's basically a formula of past, present, and future. And it speaks to the timelessness of God, that God does not exist in time, that time is something that God created, but God exists within time, throughout time, beyond time, without time, any way you want to categorize time, God is not controlled by time. Time is a construct that is controlled by God. And so he defines himself essentially as being the timeless one. I am past, I am present, and I am future. And that's when he uses terms like I'm the Alpha Omega, I'm the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega being the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end uh, is a clever way of talking about the beginning and the end. It's, it's, all, it's the idea that God has this timelessness, that he lives beyond these things, and it's a distinguishing mark from the rest of us because we live in time and are subject to it all the time. We're very aware of time. We're extremely time conscious. It's the one thing that we cannot control. Uh, you know, we talk about making, you know, redeeming the time and making the best use of our time. But the reality is time marches on whether you want it to or not. And it takes its toll. Now, I think time is both our enemy and our friend. Time is the thing that's killing me. And time is also the thing that gives me the opportunity to have a new beginning. I thank time because there's going to be a new day tomorrow and I get a second chance to do it again. And so time may seem like a, a terrible thing as it ticks away in your life, especially when you get into the, to the chronological category I'm in. But the simple fact is it's also wonderful because his mercies, the psalmist said, are new every morning. Aren't you thankful for that? <laughs> His mercies are new every morning. No matter how bad a day it was today, when you wake up in the morning, it's a fresh start with God. So he, but here's interesting. God describes himself as that, but who also describes himself by these attributes is Jesus Christ. There is no book, I believe, in the New Testament that teaches the triune nature of God more clearly than the book of Revelation. We see Jesus portrayed as being one with the Father, even when we get into chapter 5, and he talks about seeing one who's like a lamb slain in the center of the throne, where previously he talked about the Almighty sitting upon the throne, and now Jesus is in the center of the throne. It's a beautiful picture. But the whole point is that Jesus and the Father are one, and we see this image of the triunity of God expressed over and over again. But secondly, not only does he reveal the one who is the timeless one, but he also reveals what, is, uh, what he refers to in, in verse 19 of chapter 1 when he said, Write therefore what you have seen, that would be past, what is now, which is the present, and what will take place later. Um, this is essentially the self-stated outline of the book of Revelation. 
Because what we have in chapter one is we have him t- talking about what he has seen. He talks about Jesus being revealed to him and the message that's being given to him. Then when we get in chapters two and three, he says he talks about what is now the condition of the churches at that moment in chapters two and three. And then finally, what will take place last later is begins in chapter six when Jesus begins to break the seals and the judgments of God begin to unfold uh, We'll discuss whether in a chronological or cyclical matter. That's a debate that goes on. Uh, but nonetheless, there's the, un, uh, the opening of the seals, the, the declaring of the trumpets, the uh, pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath, and so forth and so on. Saying that, uh, we find that the word seven is a prominent word. Now, seven in, in, in Judaism always represented the completeness, the perfection, based upon God's creation. He created the earth, the world and universe in six days. He rested on the seventh. So seven is often a symbol of that which is complete or that which is perfect. And there's numerous sevens that are used. In fact, there are seven different sevens that are used. There are the seven churches. There are the seven angels or messengers. Uh, There are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven heavenly signs, seven bowls of God's wrath and judgment, and there are seven final visions that comprise really the text of the book of Revelation, and we'll be kind of unwrapping each of those next week when we get into the uh, final part of our book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 22. But how do we interpret these different views? Well, there are essentially four different views. There are probably more than four, but there are four major ways of looking at the book of Revelation. Um, The first we call the idealist view. And the idealist believes it's basically an allegory. In other words, don't try to figure anything out because there's nothing to figure out. Everything is symbolic and means something other, so don't try to find its literal fulfillment in any place or time or situation. Um, They believe that there are timeless truths that are held within the book, and we can kind of draw those timeless truths out that God is in control and God wants to save everybody and so forth and so on. But you know, don't, you don't take it too literally. Uh, and the problem with that is if you view it that way, you don't really read it too seriously either. Um, if, you, if you view the book of Revelation as just being kind of this allegorical mishmash, um, you realize pretty quick when I try to allegorize the book of Revelation, I get really confused because here's the problem with allegorical interpretation. Yours is as good as mine. You say it means this, I say it means that. So we argue and throw up and say, oh, well, it doesn't really mean anything to anybody. That's kind of the mindset that most of the church is in today. I mean, I've heard pastors say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So I don't teach it. And it's probably the most neglected book of the Bible today, the book of Revelation. It's probably the least taught, most neglected book in the entire Bible. For that very reason, that many believe it's not understandable. Uh, a second view is called the preterist view. This is really pretty strong in what we call the Reformed theology. Uh, some of you refer to maybe Calvinism and things of that na- nature. But uh, the preterist comes from a word preter, which means literally in Latin, end, or I mean uh, last, or past, excuse me. Uh, it means it's past. In other words, they believe that the book of Revelation was written by John as a really a coded message about the Domitian persecution 
and it only really had application to that time frame and therefore doesn't really speak of the future. It's a historical uh, metaphor, essentially, that was written, and you need to understand it within those contexts. So the, the Antichrist, the beast, is basically Domitian and you know things of that nature. Um, again, if this leads a lot of people not to take the book seriously or even to read it because why do I want to read that past history? It's just a book about old history. Uh, you might tell that I reject that particular view. Then there's thirdly the historicist view, which says that the seven churches represent the seven periods of church history, and then afterwards it talks about the end times, the future history. Um, the problem with that view, and there are a lot of people who believe that view, a lot of people who teach the book seriously, is that it's really, really impossible to, to prove it. It's really, you know, I've, I've heard people do in-depth studies on each period, each of the seven churches represents a progressive period of church history, but you could equally make the argument that you can find all seven churches in every period of church history, because you've had a Laodicean church, and a Philadelphian church, and a Smyrna, you've, church personalities have always existed, so it's pretty hard to basically make this huge generalization about the church within specific time frames. So I, I don't think that's a particularly worthwhile. Now, if you really like that, have fun with it. It won't hurt you. Uh, but I'm just saying you're going to have a hard time proving it uh, in, in, a, in an intellectually based argument. Okay? So where do I fall out? That's the fourth position. I'm a futurist. Um, and and I, I'm really thankful I'm a futurist because when I look at the election process this year, I, <laughs> I'm glad God holds the futures in his hands. <laughs> That's all I can think. You know, I, I just believe that, that maybe, maybe this, the, maybe literally this is the last Trump. I don't know. But it's, uh, <laughs> I couldn't pass it up. I, it just was laying there. I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but what I believe it is is a window into the end times. It's a window into the future. It, it's speaking literally of the tribulation, of the second coming, the millennial, the new heaven, the new earth. And this is one of the things about futuristic prophecy that you discover when you study it, that at the time it's delivered, it's very hard to see how it can be literally fulfilled. When it literally comes to pass, we're amazed how we missed it. So that there are things that have happened throughout history from the beginning of God's prophetic revelation that have come to pass and we can point back and say, this is amazing because this is exactly what the prophet said was going to happen hundreds, sometimes seven, eight hundred years before it literally happened. I mean, when Isaiah is saying seven, eight hundred years before the birth of Christ that a virgin will conceive and have a child, I mean, you got to tell me that even Isaiah was just going, okay, I'll write it, <laughs> but don't ask me to prove it. I mean, it's just, you know, just how do you put your mind around something that you have no context, no historical or experiential basis for saying it's going to happen, other than the fact that God just said this, and yet when it happens, we look back and go, oh, I see it happened. The Holy Spirit conceived a child within a virgin. And, oh, okay, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, it still boggles my mind, but nonetheless, it, nonetheless it's just, it's, it's one of those, that's the way prophecy is. In the same way when we look at the book of Revelation, personally I believe, and I think this can be dangerous to some degree if you get too fixed on an, a position, but I see so many things that are happening in the world today that have the, for the first time in the history of the world have the potential of being fulfilled. 
I mean, things, when we talk about things like the mark of the beast, we talk about the income system where you can't buy or sell unless you have this mark. That possibility has never existed literally in world history until the day we're in today. And we're coming more and more closer to it. So that it's not just something that we say, well, the Bible says this has happened. This is something that those who are in the, the data world and the economic world and so forth are saying, not only is this going to happen, it's going to have to happen. And this is the way the world is going to be operated based upon this idea that you cannot participate in the economic system unless you uh, have this mark. So, you know, I look at things like that and I think, you know, it's kind of exciting. And that's what, then suddenly you find, I find that people who have a futuristic view of the book of Revelation study it, read it, get excited, and pay close attention to what it has to say. They're the only ones, I'm sure people would object to me if you're an idealist or whatever, but they're the only ones I really believe who take it seriously because they believe it's meant to be understood literally, although there is figurative and symbolic language, but every time it uses that, it explains what the symbol means. It's very clear to me in a simple reading of the book of Revelation that the Jesus and John meant for us to take it as being a literal revelation and not some kind of allegory or metaphorical message or something of the past, but something that is yet laying out in the future. Uh, in, in short, I would say that everything in the book militates around that concept. So that what the message really comes down to, and I'd summarize it into the book's message into three simple points. Number one, that God is in control. God is in control, both of history and of the future. He controls the past, he controls the present, but he also controls what's coming in the future. And, and that's, a, that's a critically important uh, thing to understand and believe if you're going to maintain your sanity. That secondly, that Jesus is going to come back. He will return. That he doesn't just simply return when the clouds of your mind part and you have this revelation of Jesus. No, he literally, as the angel said in the book of Acts, the same way you saw him leave is the same way he's going to come back. He's going to come back and he's going to set his foot on the Mount of Olives and his foot is going to be a literal foot. It's going to be on a littler mountain called the Mount of Olives. And Everything that Scripture says is going to happen is going to happen. It's, it's something that's going to happen in the literal thing sense. Uh, and therefore, he's basically saying you should evaluate the present in light of what the future holds. And this is the, that's a really, really important dynamic, that I begin to think of my present life in terms of what the future reality is going to be. If I believe the future reality is Social Security and retirement and an old age home, then I'm going to organize my life around those issues. But if I believe that my eternity, my future, is to depart this world and to enter into the eternal presence of God and to live and reign with Christ forever, then I'm going to organize my life around that reality. I'm going to predicate the decision uh, structure of my life around that reality. And it changes dramatically how you live your life. That's why John in his first letter to the church in chapter 3 said that every man that has this hope, the hope of Christ coming, purifies himself even as he is pure. It has a way of writing the, the focus of your life so that you begin to say, you know, there are a lot of terrible things that happen in this world. There are a lot of painful, difficult points. There's suffering, there's loss, there's unfairness, there's injustice, there's, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And there's some good things too, you know. There's Saturday morning cartoons. There are good things out there as well. But the reality is that in the face of all of that, you can easily lose your sense of who you are and what you're here for based upon all of the crud 
that is swirling around your life. But when you realize that, no, I have a future that is glorious beyond description, beyond comprehension, that's the reason we can't describe it is because we can't comprehend it. When I realize that there's a future that God is awaiting for me, then that changes the predication of my life. The thirdly, um, he wants us to know that salvation is for all who will believe, that all who will receive it. It's not just for a special group. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's not for any group at all. It's for anyone of any nation, of any ethnicity, any culture, any society who will simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he ends the, the revelation to the churches in verses uh, 20 of chapter 3 by saying, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me that he is uh, a, an equal opportunity savior for all men. Well, having said that, let's talk about, uh, let's go and get into the book for a little bit here. And again, as I said, the outline breaks down into three simple parts. We're going to look at the first two. Number one, what you have seen. Uh, and what he tells us in verse one is what John saw in this revelation was what must soon take place. These are things that are going to unfold uh, in the future. And the person that, that he sees is revealed to him as Jesus Christ, and Christ is referred to as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's called, he said, says of him, he's the one who's freed us from our sins by his blood, that he is the Alpha Omega. He's the Lord God who was and is and who is to come. He calls him the Almighty. In verses 12, he says, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Very similar language as Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel says the same thing. And he goes on to describe him with white hair, hair white as wool, white as snow, eyes blazing with fire, feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, and voice like the sound of rushing waters. And then he says, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, which later on he defi defines as being the word of God. And his face, he said, shone like the shining of the sun in its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though as dead, just like Daniel did. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so this is Jesus who is one with the Father. And he gives this promise. He says in verse 3, Blessed is everyone who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So think about it. You're going to get a blessing tonight because you listen to this word. There's a blessing that God says. Every time you read it, he says, there's a blessing that comes upon your life when you read this book. But not just read it, but you hear what it says and you take it into your heart. Because he says in verse 7, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So this is what John saw, but then he goes on, talk about, he says, secondly, what is now? And that's our uh, word to the seven churches of Asia. And there's a, there's a structure, a kind of an outline structure that every comment to each of the churches follows and simply breaks down into affirmation, 
correction, and motivation. What do we mean by that? Well, if we take the church of Ephesus, for example, he says in verse 2, chapter 2, affirmation, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. He goes on, I know that you can't stand those who are evil, and I know this, and he's saying all the good things about them. But then he says in verse 4, yet, <coughs> excuse me, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. And then he gives them motivation in verse 7, to him who overcomes I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Every one of the churches has that same structure. If you uh, go through it, we won't have the time to do that. But let me summarize the message to each of the seven churches. That first of all, and I used uh, an alliteration of C words so that um, I would sound horribly clever. Um, first of all, the church of Ephesus I, I define as being cold. He says, you've abandoned your love for God and your fellow man. You see, when, the, when we stop loving God, we also uh, naturally start loving, stop loving people as well. And so that he says, but you have left that first love, that love you had in the beginning, that love which was the root of your existence when you came to faith in me, that's, that's gone. And now you basically are just simply going through the actions. Essentially, he's describing a church that has replaced devotion for service. They, they begin to find their identity in the service and the duties that they perform, not in relationship with Jesus. And we often describe that as losing sight of the relationship and becoming religious. But these are people that we would look at on the outside and say, man, these guys are solid Christians. And God's looking at them saying, you know, outwardly, they've got it all down. Their theology is correct. Their teaching is sound. They do everything the way it's supposed to be done. But there's absolutely no love in them. There's just no love of God. And so we don't have time to go back into the principle of the importance of love. But he calls them to repentance. And then he moves on to the church of Smyrna, which I said the word literally means to be crushed. And the words that he uses in talking about them, he uses the word affliction, poverty, slander, suffering, fear. These are people who are being crushed by an adversarial world. And again, his word to them is to hang on, hold on, and continue in faith uh, throughout these hardships. Thirdly, the church of Pergamum, uh, I call it the conflicted church, because he says you have people there that hold false teachings. In other words, you, you uh, have people, you have this conflict going on that there's not a unity around the truth of God. People believe various things. Theology becomes something that's up for debate. Now, there are some points of theology that are gray and we can debate them, but there are other points that are not negotiable. They are the foundations of what it means to be a Christian. I take personal issue with people who says, I'm a Christian, but I just don't believe in the Bible. You know, it's like saying, I love spaghetti, but I can't stand noodles. It, it, it just really makes no sense at all. Take the pasta away, you don't have spaghetti. And that's the same way you take the Bible away, you don't have Christianity. You may have something that's Christian-like, but it's not Christianity. And so essentially, these are the churches who start become conflicted because there's no longer that solid commitment. And then fourthly, the church of Thyatira, I call the compromise church because they were tolerating, he actually uses that word tolerate, teaching that misleads. They don't confront false theology, they just tolerate it. And, you know, it's, we live in this world that says, well, let's just all get along so that we can go along. But the Bible tells us that, you know, we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And I know putting those two together sometimes is a difficult challenge. But because it's, 
you know, oftentimes it's irritation and anger that motivates us to tell somebody something they need to hear. But the simple fact is, truth is essential. The truth without love stops being truth. Love without truth stops being love. And so that if you see somebody who is moving into a false doctrine, into a misbelief, then we need to begin to hold them accountable and to speak the truth to them and saying, but that's not what Scripture teaches. That's not the Word of God. And then the church of Sardis, I call the comatose church. They're the ones who had a reputation, but they were dead, in fact. They, they looked like they were alive, but there was no pulse. Put a mirror under their nose, and they were either a vampire or dead. We don't know which one. So, you know, it's, it's not a compliment, and he's calling them to repentance. The church of Philadelphia, it sounds like a non-glorious title, but I call them the consistent church. He says to them, you have kept my word. And therefore, I will keep you from the hour of great tribulation that's coming upon the earth. And so why were they suffering? Again, they were one of the two suffering churches because they were committed to keeping his word. But he says, I will reward that. And then lastly, the Laodicean church. (laughs) Think of a C word. I'm thinking carnal. Uh, They are the carnal Christians. They are proud. They are self-sufficient. They talk about being Christians, but they really depend upon their own resources. Uh, the, one of the things James says, the poor of this world who are rich in faith towards God, you know why the poor are rich in faith towards God? Because they have no place else to turn. You have to trust in God. Being in want is not always a negative, even though we may view it that way. When we, you have a situations in your life that you can't fix with your resources, where do you turn? Hopefully in faith to God or else you do the chicken little thing and run around going crazy. But the reality is that when we have no place else to turn, we usually turn to God. And so the problem with the Laodicean church was they had so much they had forgotten how to be dependent upon God. I do not think that having resources necessarily equates to faithlessness. I just think you know, nine out of 10 dentists agree with me that this is kind of what happens, that I know that when I have everything I need, I don't worry about meeting a problem that I won't need until I meet a problem that's bigger than what I have, and then I begin to worry. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, which brings me to the last thing I want to talk. We talked about chapters four and five uh, as part of the things that are now, because this is where the, the revelation begins, when John is lifted up, literally caught up in the throne, of, throne room of God, where he says in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. And he goes on in chapter 5, in verse 1, he says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. We know that the seals were put on scrolls to make sure that they were only opened by those who were authorized. The seal was a sign of ownership. You had to have the right, the authorization, to break the seal on a scroll. And he says, here is this one sitting on the throne holding the scroll. And then he goes on to say, and no one was found on earth, found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. None of those in heaven, none of the angels, nobody was worthy to open it. And then he says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. 
That always animates my thinking when I read that passage, that when he sees Jesus, he says, he looks like a lamb who was slain. Do you think about this? When you, when you, when you get to heaven, you see Jesus, you're going to see the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. You're going to see the wounds that he's going to wear as eternal emblems of the greatness of his sacrifice for your sin and mine. Here he is. He's at the center of the throne. He's one with the Father, and he is worthy to open the seals and to begin the unfolding of the events of the last days. It's an interesting interplay. When Jesus said that no man knows the day or the hour, but only my Father in heaven. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful statement, isn't it? Nobody knows the day or the hour. You don't know it. I don't know it. But Jesus is in the throne of heaven, and at that moment, the Father says to him, now is the time to open the seals. And what he's telling us, when those seals begin to be broken, then the history of the world is going to begin to rapidly move in a direction that's going to lead ultimately to the second coming and the end of human history as we know it today. And that's what we'll dig into next week. I apologize. I am 10 minutes and 31 seconds over budget. <laughs> Father God, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would just help us to absorb this information in a way that would uh, simplify the book. My whole motive in, in this whole series from Genesis all the way to Revelation through these last few years has been able to, to, make the, to put the, the Word of God on the lowest shelf possible so that every one of us would know that we can read it, we can understand it, that it's there to speak to us in the common language about the common issues that face the common man every day of our lives. And I pray that that would be true with Revelation as well, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand as we close?